Good afternoon. If you Google any of these words, leadership development, spiritual formation, rational spirituality, disciplined living, apologetics, theology, and a host of other words, if you Google those words, you will come to the name of Ken Boa, our speaker today, because he is a past master at all of these disciplines. He was trained as a scientist, and he was then trans transitioned into a theologian, and in many ways, he is a modern-day C.S. Lewis. He has degrees from Case Institute of Technology in Ohio, Dallas Seminary, New York University, his first PhD, and Oxford University, his second doctorate. He's known to many people as a prolific author. He has over 50 books and articles or chapters of books to his credit, um, and he's still writing like crazy. He is an Anglican layman. He is a scholar. He is a rational evangel a relational evangelist. He's a teacher, a radio and TV personality who connects particularly with businessmen. His weekly meeting for businessmen in Atlanta always draws large crowds. He lives in Atlanta with his wife, um, and he is the director of something called Reflection Ministries that seeks to encourage, teach, and equip um, people to know Christ and to follow him. And. Um, and to become progressively conformed to God's image. He's a new friend of mine, just met him this week, but I think of him as a kind of Renaissance man who believes that the image of God in us can be redeemed and restored and renewed. So to meet him is to connect with someone who has something of the spirit, I think, of St. Paul. Well, he's here in Charleston as one of our principal speakers in the Anglican Leadership Institute, and through Hank, I'll let Hank say something about that later, but um, he speaks tonight at St. John's Church on John's Island on the subject of rebuilding your broken world. Will you please welcome Dr. Ken Bowen. Great to be with you. Life is about relationships at the end of the day, is it not? We're approaching the 15th anniversary of 9-11, and if you recall, all the cell phone calls that were made in that day were about what? They recorded them. Every one of them. Not about the weather or sports. Uh, not even about how they were doing in their business. But at the end of the day, what was these last messages that were made by people who knew it would be their last message? What was it? I'm, this, is, I'm, this, is not the, this is not theoretical here. <laughs> Tell the kids I love them. Word of expression. At the end, we know the currency of life is relationships. And I believe that's also the currency of heaven. It's interesting to me, though, because relationships can be the most wonderful things on the planet and the most horrific things on the planet, as we well know. I collect many things, and one of them is a list of country and western songs, one-liners. Uh, and they, every one of them is about relationships. You know, when you pay, play a country western song backwards, you get your wife back, you get your dog back, you get your car back, you know, all that stuff. So when you go forwards, for example, 
uh, my wife ran off with my best friend, and I miss him. You know, something's a little bit of a twist here. It's not quite what you expected. When the phone don't ring, you'll know it's me. Just think of that profound moment there when it doesn't ring. How can I miss you if you won't go away? Another basic, just a little line, but it expresses a whole life of angst, of pain. You're the fingernails scraping on the blackboard of my heart. That's pretty brutal. This one's uh, more philosophical. I don't know whether to go bowling or to shoot myself. So he's got, the guy's more of a philosopher. He's on a conundrum there. Now this one's a little bit bitter. If you want to keep the beer real cold, put it next to my ex-wife's heart. Yeah, you can feel the bitterness dripping from that one. One I recently came across, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. There's a lot of wisdom to that one. Or this one, if I shot you when I wanted to, I'd be out of jail now. <laughs> so you have to process that one. Maybe though my favorite one may be this one. It may be, I'm so miserable since you left me, it's almost like having you here. The guy loses both ways, you see. That's the problem with relationships. So they're most wonderful and agonizing at the same time. Because we're in a broken world, are we not? We're in a fallen world. Things are not as they were intended to be. And, you know, there are many uniquenesses of the biblical vision of life. And one of those many uniquenesses is this. We are not as God originally made us. We changed ourselves. We were never intended to die. We lost tremendous amount as, as a result of the awful blast of the fall. And as a consequence, if we look back at the story that God is unfolding in history, the big story, the big picture really is a story, a drama, but actually it's a comedy at the end. Commedia is the term that Dante used to describe what we call the divine comedy. But it was commedia, which means it ends well. And that's the journey, that's the story we're embedded in. God's story is a divine comedy. It has four acts in this narrative, in this story. The first act is creation. And it was good, 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 good. And then what did he say of the sixth day, of the pinnacle of his creation, when he creates a being in his own image and in his own likeness, what does he say then? It is very good. So it begins well, but... Hard on the heels of that extraordinary beginning is the blast of the fall and the fourfold alienation that flows out of it. The first is that we're alienated or separated from God and the day you eat thereof you will surely die. It was a spiritual death. It doesn't mean annihilation, it means separation and there was a barrier now. Not only did we die there in our relationship with God, but also a second alienation in ourselves. You know that there's things that you say and think and do that you don't want to say and think and do. There's a conflict within us. We would rather do the better course, but we find ourselves often slipping into the worse. We all struggle with that. So there's some kind of an in, inner conflict and turmoil. The third alienation between uh, God and ourselves is others. It naturally follows. Thomas Merton was right when he said, uh, we are not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace uh, with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we're not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. Well, that summarizes a good deal, does it not? So if we can get that vertical relationship there and restore, and that's what God's story is about. 
The fourth area of alienation is between ourselves and the created order. And now God is working something. It's called redemption. It's the third act. And the first act, then creation, the second act of the fall, and then we have redemption, the third act. And here we have the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, that he will crush the head of the serpent. But, the, but, the, but at the same time, the serpent seed will bruise his heel. And so it's a prediction, even then, even that early, of the overcoming of that alienation. And that God's extraordinary plan to turn even the folly and stupidity of humanity into a purpose and a program that will lead to his own uh, revelation that he will reveal to men and to angels, to the whole of creation, that he is who he claims to be. And he's going to do that through taking people who were formerly condemned criminals and now are beloved children. He's going to do it by the radical change so that he's creating people now who are, are as he intended them to be. He's now giving us the power to become what we could not be on our own. And he's going to do this in such a way that we are now in a journey, a, a soul-forming world. And in this journey, we're embedded. But there's always pain and, and uh, sorrows and setbacks in our narrative. Creation, first act. The fall, the second. Redemption, to begin to substantially overcome those fourfold alienations, but not until we reach the fourth act, the consummation of all things. When all will be well, and we anticipate that. We see it in Revelation 21, that, those, that there will no longer be any death, nor any pain, nor sorrow, nor suffering, nor disease. All these things will be done away with. Behold, what does he say? I make all things new. And so as Teresa of Norwich, uh, as she put it, uh, rather Ju uh, Julian of Norwich put it, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, which is a lot better than saying this too shall pass. Something better than that, no. He's preparing something that transcends your imagination. You don't ha we don't have the cognitive capacity. Let me illustrate that with four, three worlds. I, I'm fond of doing this little thing at a funeral. Anytime I do a funeral, I, I will do this. You, you are in three worlds. You've already been in, you're, you were in one already, and now you're in the second one, and you're being prepared for the third. I call the first world womb world, W-O-M-B. You won't remember it. But there was a time when you were floating upside down in your mother's amniotic fluid, and you were, ha you were in a good condition there. And if someone were to knock on the womb and say, hey, you want out of here, and if you could communicate with them, what would your response have been? You kidding me? What do you mean? What, what do you mean out of here? There's no out of here. This is all there is. There is no out of here. Besides which, I have all my needs met. I hear my mother's heartbeat. I, uh, I, I'm warm and cozy. All my needs are met. So I wouldn't want to be out of here. But consider the fact, if you stayed beyond term, what would happen? To stay beyond term is to die. You were never meant to stay in that world. No, that world was designed to create you for a Greek word called bios, B-I-O-S, from which we get biosphere, biology. That was physical life. And so God crafted his magnum opus in the darkness of this world, in total darkness. And then you can't be in two worlds simultaneously, so you had to die to womb world to be birthed in this world. You see the analogy? That birth canal was a death to womb world and a, 
ushering into a larger, wider world, and you had no capacity to imagine in that little confined world the things that we now see, the idea of a beautiful sunset, of great music and art, of table fellowship with people that you love, and so many more things that, that the embryo had no category to imagine, and you can, I suppose, see where I'm heading. We're in a second world. It's actually a second womb. You're in a soul-forming world, but not for bios. You've already got that. But for the second form of life, the second birth. And that word, another Greek word, zoe. If, you, if, a, if you, a girl named Zoe is based upon that. Zoe is eternal life. It's the life of Christ in you and through you as you. So you've been transferred from the line of Adam and now planted into the line of, of Christ that has no beginning and no end. It's an astonishing concept. And so in this world, we're in a soul-forming world. There's going to be a lot of pain and sorrow and setbacks as well as joys and delights. But at the end of the day, God is working all things together, but you're not in a li living room, you're in a gym. You're being work worked out. And God will use his severe mercy and use the crucible of adversity to shape the person that you need to become. Consider this thought experiment. What do you most admire in hero heroic people? Think of somebody you look up to as a hero. Past, present. What comes to your mind when you think, what do, you, what do, I, really, what do I admire that person? What, what qualities does that person have? Any, what is that? Character. They have, they have a robust character. That they're authentic. There's an authenticity about them. What they had to endure. The perseverance they overcome. Humility. I heard humility. That they, what's that? Judgment. They have good discernment, as you mean it that way. They're able to discern and know the world they're living in, but they're, and they're not fooled, but at the same time, <coughs> they have a hope for how things can continue to move, you see. These are agents of change. These are people whose presence in the sphere of work or anything manifests a, a reality that transcends the sacred and secular. Anything we call secular isn't secular at all if the focus of your heart's the eternal. The, sacred, the secular becomes spiritual when the focus of your heart's the eternal. Everything matters. Everything counts. Everything can be done as an offering and as a gift so that you can actually, in your business, serve your customers and clients, your vendors, your employees, your employers. You can serve them and do better if you're playing to an invisible audience of one than if you're trying to impress people. There'll be a higher level. Because you finally discovered that they are not the source of your needs. When you believe that your customers and clients are the source of your provision, you will be committed to manipulating them. But if you construe instead that they may or may not be a, a, a means, but they're not the source. God's the source of my provision. And he may use that instrumentality, but they not necessarily. Then I am committed to serving them with integrity and skill and excellence. And I'm looking to God for the outcome, not them. So I'm not now committed to manipulating them. I'm free to serve them more effectively than if I construed that they were my provider. And so all of these ways of looking at the world then help us to see
We're in a soul-forming world. The qualities we most admire in such people, humility, integrity, courage, perseverance, um, all those kinds of things. The word integrity is the word that people look for more than anything else when they're asked whether they want a leader. Integrity. That is, yes is yes, is no is no. That there's, a, uh, there's a character that I can count on. How are those qualities forged? Are they forged in success? Are they forged in times of ease? I submit to you, every one of the qualities you admire in others is forged in the crucible of adversity, of setbacks, of sorrows, of pain. You will learn more in a fallen world from your setbacks than you will from your successes. And I'm submitting to you that these are redemptive messages. I love to teach film and I teach literature because I love the power of story. A great story has a character arc and we're part of that story. To complete my third world in this, in this story, the reality is that we are not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying heading for the land of the living. That what we call death is not death, it is a second birth canal. And so that second birth canal will open you up to a wider realm, the Father's house. And then you will be home. Right now you're a pilgrim, a sojourner, a stranger, an alien in exile, but then you're being prepared. And God is far more concerned about your, your character than he is about your comfort. Far more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness. So he'll allow many things, severe mercies, to occur. And out, there's not a one of us in this room that, who doesn't have a broken story. And so the question is, how do you fix a broken story? And the only way I, I know to fix that broken story, because all of us have them, is to embed our story in the greatest story ever told, his story, God's story, that begins well and will end well. So that little dash that's between two dates on a tombstone, your life isn't those dates, it's the dash. There may be a century between those dates, 10 years, 10 months. But it's still a dash. But what we do now matters. It counts. It will endure. And so if we are prudent, if we're wise, we're going to leverage the currency of the temporal, our abilities, our, our, our wealth, um, our resources, all these things, and we're going to turn them into the currency of relationships, the currency of heaven, by building truth into eternal beings. That the only way I know to fix a broken story, and we all have them, is to embed them in God's greater story. My own journey was one, um, a strange one indeed, where there was a lot of setbacks. And a lot of things I did not want to happen, that if they had not happened, I would not really have a perspective of any depth whatsoever. Whenever I see a movie, it's this way. Conflict is the stuff of story. Imagine a story that begins well, they're all happy. In the middle, they're still happy. In the end, they're happy. That's very nice, but it's uninteresting. So I just saw, my, my, I have two grandsons. Kenny is 12 and Jesse is 6. I just showed them the movie Rain Man. Remember that with Dustin Hoffman? You never think of the guy as acting. He's that convincing. He's this astonishing, uh, prodigious savant. Based upon a real person, by the way, named Kim Peake, who recently who did, in fact, me memorize 12,000 books, and he could recite whatever you wanted. Tragically, though, he did, didn't know what it meant. 
interesting stuff that. But there's a process, and Tom Cruise goes through this character arc because of lots and lots of setbacks, and he's a real jerk at the front end of the film, but there's something redemptive that happens as a result of his adversities that causes him to no longer use his brother, but now he comes to love him. He comes to see things in a new light. And it's because of his pain and setbacks and adversity that he becomes the person at the end that he was not at the beginning. So that's what a, a, a great comedy is like. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream or Twelfth Night. What's happening is that first act, all's well, then things get worse, second gets worse and worse. You don't know if anything good's going to come out of it, but you know it's a comedy because they don't all die. You know, like Hamlet. You know it's a comedy because somehow something happens. And the people who were there at the beginning are not the same as the people who were there at the end. Because the adversity shaped and developed them into becoming a person. I've had painful setbacks. Uh, among other things, I've had 13 near-death experiences. I mean really pretty near-death experiences. And I'm on borrowed time. We all are. I don't even, those are the only ones I know about. The reality is that all of us have had pains and adversities and sorrows and setbacks, and I'm wondering, what, how, what, how could this possibly be a redemptive part in my story? But I'm here to tell you, as I look back, I begin to realize, ah, I can see something of a pattern here. Not that you're going to always have the answers in this life, but you can look back often, and you see your own journey, you begin to see patterns that are moving. You are a work in pro progress. You are in a soul-forming world, and God is working with, on you to bring you into a greater and greater conformity with the greatest thing that you could ever imagine, being like Jesus in, in your spirit, soul, and body, inside out. And his, he will not stop the process until everything about you is made, made into that whole perfection. This world is not the home, our, our home, but we recognize we're heading toward home. He's got us in a trajectory where all things will be well. And it's a comforting way of looking at life. It's a way of seeing, it's a way of being, it's a way of thinking that helps me realize it's not what I see. I'm an amphibious being. I'm a spiritual being having an earthbound embodied experience. But he's inviting me to leverage what I'm doing. And everything matters. Everything I do this day at the office, everything I do at home, everything I do with my, my neighbor, with my friends, everything can be done in a way that is uh, extraordinary, that you can take these and, and make splendor out of the ordinary. And so whatever is done for the name, whatever is done for the understanding of who and whose we are, as I live and come to know Jesus better and allow his life to be manifest in me and through me as me. Rather than doing things for him, inviting him to do things through me. What will begin to take place more and more as I study the scriptures and uh, renew my mind and have an alternate narrative? Because part of our problem is most of us have bought into lies. We've bought into false scripts. You'll never amount to anything. You're just stupid, aren't you? How come you can't be like your brother? Or whatever the false narrative was. If we buy into those narratives, we will be bound and determined to prove we will amount to something. I've seen driven men who are continuing to prove that even after the father is dead. 
So the only way I know to overcome a false story is to replace it with a better one. To, if, to get rid of the, the false narrative, not by extinguishing it, you'll never do that, but by replacing it with a better vision. When my wife Karen and I were working with hippies uh, when I was in seminary, took one to no one. So, it, it, so I, I had a credibility with these freaks, and uh, so they, they, um, we worked with them a good deal. And uh, one thing we never did, though, we never told them get off drugs. We told them instead about knowing Jesus. One by one, they would tell us, we don't use drugs anymore because we found what we were really looking for, and they were in Christ. You see the here? The idea is the expulsive power of a new affection, a greater cause, a greater vision, a greater thing, so that you replace the false with the better good, not extinguish, but a better vision of what you wish to be like. I have a couple minutes for Q&A.